following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you would now take your Bibles with me and turn to uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll begin the reading at verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, picking up at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have now to consider your holy word and truths of your scriptures. Lord, we, we need your spirit to give us understanding, to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Please help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What if I told you that um, I'm going to bring a brief series of messages on a topic or doctrine that will do all of the following things for you as a Christian if you truly grasp it by faith? One... It will enable you to have a much clearer understanding of the entire plan of salvation. Indeed, this topic is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation from beginning to end. Two, it will help you to see much more clearly the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ in all of your Christian life and experience. In doing that, three, it will tend to increase your love for him and the intimacy of your communion with him. Four, it will keep you, on the one hand, from being tinged with a kind of subtle legalism in your understanding of how the gospel works. And five, it will also keep you, on the other hand, from falling into the opposite ditch of antinomianism. Six, it will tend to greatly strengthen your assurance of salvation. Seven, 
Understanding and appropriating this doctrine is intimately connected to making real progress in the pursuit of holiness. Eight, it will help you to be more confident and unhindered in declaring the free offer of the gospel to others. Nine, it will give you greater confidence in prayer. And ten, it will help to protect you from temptation. And there are other things that I could mention. If I were to tell you that I'm going to teach you about something that will do all of those things for you as a Christian, if you understand and lay hold of it by faith, do you think you would be interested in that? Do you think that a series of sermons you'd want to, uh, that's a series of sermons that you'd want to hear and to make sure that you don't miss? Well, I was just wondering. <laughs> no, if, you're, if your answer is yes, be glad because that's exactly what I'm going to begin to do this evening. And the topic or doctrine that I'm going to be addressing for the ne next three to four weeks that can do all of these things for you and more is the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating about the importance of this doctrine, let me just give you some quotes. Uh, these are quotes from some pretty well-known theologians that most of us have probably heard of. Let me start with John Murray, the great Scottish theologian. Some of you have read his little work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Murray writes, union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Indeed, the whole process of salvation has its origin in one phase of union with Christ, and salvation has in view the realization of other phases of union with Christ, all to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God, all that has been secured and procured for them in the once and for all accomplishment of redemption, all of which they become actual partakers of in the application of redemption, and all that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummation bliss is embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. There is no truth more suited to impart confidence and strength, comfort and joy in the Lord than this one of union with Christ. Let me quote now from Sinclair Ferguson. He calls this, quote, a doctrine which lies at the heart of the Christian life and is the foundation of all our spiritual experience and all spiritual blessings. Of all the doctrines surrounding the Christian life, this, one of the profoundest, is also one of the most practical in its effects. Quoting now from Kevin DeYoung, echoing what these other men have said, he writes, Union with Christ may be the most important doctrine that you've never heard of. As Christians... We know we've been saved by Christ. We should look like Christ, and we can have a relationship with Christ, but we almost never consider how all of this depends on our union with Christ. The whole of our salvation can be summed up with reference to this reality. Now, if this doctrine of union with Christ is so important, why is it that we hear so little about it? Certainly, it doesn't seem to be given the prominent emphasis that it deserves or that it, it uh, seems to have had in the past. In fact, I wonder if I asked all of us to, uh, to raise our hands, a show of hands tonight, how many of you have ever heard a series of sermons on this doctrine of union with Christ? Perhaps some of you have. 
or perhaps you've heard a message here and there. Certainly you've heard it referred to many times from the pulpit here, but I'd venture to say that many of us have heard very little about it in a detailed way, and if we're honest, we're not really sure what it means or what this doctrine of union with Christ is talking about. And yet, if it's as central and important and as practically relevant as I argued at the beginning that it is, and as these men I've quoted have asserted, then certainly that's a deficiency that needs to be corrected. And this is one of the reasons that I've decided to devote um, several sermons to this topic over the next few weeks. I have a few evening slots in the next month or so that I want to address this. Now, my goal is to take what can sometimes be a hard doctrine to wrap your head around, and I think that's why it's sometimes neglected. But my goal is to try to take that, to try to explain it in a way that you can understand and and to help us to see its practical relevance in our lives as Christians. Well, this evening, in the first message on this subject, my plan is simply to try uh, to at least introduce us to this subject I want us to consider, first of all, the New Testament witness to union with Christ. And then I hope to begin to say something tonight about the all-encompassing scope of union with Christ in its various phases or dimensions. And we'll just get started there. So let's consider, first of all, the New Testament witness to union with Christ. And I want us to see its pervasiveness in the New Testament, its descriptions in the New Testament, and its pictures in the New Testament. This is going to be a pretty quick overview of those things. First is pervasiveness. Now, to be pervasive means to be widely spread throughout something. Well, when I speak of the pervasiveness of the New Testament witness to union with Christ, I mean that it is widely spread throughout the New Testament. It's all over the place. For example, it's referred to more than two dozen times in John's gospel and over 200 times in Paul's epistles alone. In fact, it's so pervasive in Paul's writings that we can easily pass right over it and miss it. Think of the air that we breathe each and every day and every moment of our lives. It's there all around us, but we hardly notice it or think about it because we're so used to it. Well, the Scripture's witness to union with Christ can be like that. You say, I don't really see this reality of union with Christ everywhere in the Bible. In fact, I've never really thought about it that much, and I've been reading the Bible for a long time, for many years. Well, think, for example, about how often in Paul's epistles you find this phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. It's everywhere. I've had you turn to one of the many passages we could look at. Many we could, but I thought this would be a good place to start here in Ephesians 1. Uh, beginning in verse 3 down to verse 14, I want you to notice how many times Paul uses this phrase, in Christ or in him or in whom. Did you notice that when we were reading it? Well, I want you to see it. Here Paul is describing the great plan of salvation from beginning, uh, its beginning in election to its experience by the believer in time, to its consummation in glory. He speaks of election and predestination, our adoption and acceptance with God, redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and our eternal inheritance, and so on. It's a breathtaking passage. It's been called the Himalayas of the New Testament. But I want you to know, in most of it is one big, long, run-on sentence in the Greek. Paul gets carried away sometimes. But I want you to notice how often Paul keeps repeating this phrase. 
In him, in Christ, in whom? Let's read it again now with that in mind. Follow with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you in, in him were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Nine times... Paul uses this language, in Christ, in him, in whom? Now, without opening up each of these statements in detail right now, right here on the very surface of this passage, we see that this concept of being in Christ is central to Paul's doctrine of salvation. This is the kind of language that we see throughout Paul's epistles, and we find it in many other places in the New Testament as well. So much for its pervasiveness. Let's consider now, secondly, its descriptions. Union with Christ is described in a variety of ways. I'll just briefly mention them, and I think you'll recognize uh, having come across these in your Bible reading. First, there's this phrase we just considered, in him or in Christ. We looked at Ephesians 1, but we see that in many other places in the New Testament. A couple of examples. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are free from condemnation. You have been delivered from condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2, 10 to 11. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands. Secondly, we have the language with him with him. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Colossians 2, 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Thirdly, believers are described as being joined to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Fourthly, Christ is described as being one with his people. You remember in Acts 9, 4 on the road to Damascus when Paul was converted. What did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Matthew 25, 40, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Fifthly, Christ is described as abiding in us and us in him. 
John 14, 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, these are just a few of many examples of various ways our union with Christ is described. In him, with him, joined to him, one with him, he in us, and us in him. His pervasiveness, his descriptions, and then consider also its pictures. The New Testament writers use a, a variety of metaphors or illustrations or analogies to picture various aspects of union with Christ. And we need to remember now that these are analogies. An analogy is not an identical representation. Analogy is not identity. Every analogy breaks down at some point. It's not stating that something is equivalent to it. It's not making an equation, this is that. It's making a comparison. This is like that. It's comparable to it in significant ways. So what are some of the analogies or pictures we find of union with Christ in the New Testament? First of all, this union is compared to that of branches to a vine. John 15, 1-8, Jesus speaks of himself as the true vine. And he describes believers as branches that are united to the vine and grow out of the vine and receive their nourishment from the vine. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Secondly, this union is compared to the union of a husband and his wife. This is a very common picture in the Bible. A husband and his wife. Since your Bibles, Bibles are probably still open to the book of Ephesians, turn over to Ephesians 5 for an example of this. As most of you know, uh, starting in verse 22, Paul begins to take up the subject of marriage and to give practical instruction to husbands and wives. Now, notice what he says beginning in verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Notice Paul tells us that the marriage covenant and bond between a husband and wife is so intimate and it is of such a nature that for a man to love his wife is actually to love himself. He's to consider his wife as being his own body. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, notice, just as the Lord does the church, verse 30, for we, the church, his people, you, if you're a believer in Christ, are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are so united to Christ that we are considered members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I'll tell you what I'm really speaking about, Paul says. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the nature of this union that exists between them. So this union is compared to that of branches to a vine, the union between a husband and his wife. Thirdly, there's the picture of the head and his body, right? The head and the body. Now, Paul mentions this also in this passage. Look up at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Look over at chapter 4, picking up at verse 15. 
Paul is describing how that God has given various gifts to the church, pastors and teachers, till we all come to the unity of the faith and that we no longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Then he says in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part doesn't share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And he, we are growing up into, in union with him who is the head. Look over at chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Fourthly, this union is also compared to that between food and drink and the eater and the drinker, the eater of the food and the drinker of the food. In John 6, verse 50 to 59, Christ is described as food indeed. He describes himself as food indeed and drink indeed. And the Christian is described as feeding upon him and drinking him. It's another way this union is described. Fifthly, it's compared to an older brother and his younger brethren. Jesus is described as the firstborn among many brethren. Romans eight twenty nine. Sixthly, it's described over against the union of all men with Adam. Christ is described as the second and the last Adam. Romans 5, 12 and following in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. There is the first Adam and there is the union of his posterity with him in his fall, even before they existed, even before we existed. We were in union with Adam, federal union with Adam. The first Adam all of his posterity and union with him by which we sinned in him and we reap the consequences of his fall. Then there is Christ and the union of his people with him in his redemptive accomplishment by which we share in that accomplishment and in all of its benefits. Seventhly, at perhaps the lowest level, is compared to the relationship between stones in a building and the chief cornerstone of the building. We see this in Ephesians 2. Uh, Christ is the chief cornerstone of the new covenant's temple, the spiritual house of God. And we are all members. We are like stones in that temple. We also see this in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5, where Peter writes, coming to him, to Christ, as to a living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house connected as we are to the cornerstone he refers to christ as the chief cornerstone quoting from isaiah 28 16 and psalm 18 22 he is the chief cornerstone and we are united to him as living stones who are being built up together a spiritual house or temple and then eighthly at the highest level this union is even compared to the union that exists between the persons of the trinity jesus says something very remarkable in his prayer for his people in John 17. In John 17, 21 to 23, he prays that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they also may be one in us. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one. Jesus even compares our union with him to the union that exists between the Father and the Son. Now, again, remember, it's a comparison. It's not identical to it, but in some ways it can be compared to it. So these are some of the ways union with Christ is pictured in the New Testament. Now, I trust you're beginning to see just how pervasive this really is. Just how pervasive this concept, and we could go to the Old Testament. I I thought about going to the Old Testament roots of this concept and showing you the many pictures of it we have in the Old Testament pointing to it. But hopefully this is sufficient to say, you know, this is something I need to know about, right? This is something I need to understand. It's all over the New Testament. It's everywhere throughout the New Testament. And it's not the easiest thing to grasp immediately. I hope I'm going to help you to grasp it. But certainly, if someone gives you a love letter or someone gives you a deed or, or a will that, that describes to you everything that's been willed to you and given to you by the testator of that will, shouldn't you want to take the time to read it and understand what it's talking about, right? And so this is something we need to try to understand and to understand with the help of the Spirit as much as the Word of God will allow us to understand. And so we're ready now to at least begin to consider, secondly, uh, what I'm calling the all-encompassing scope of union with Christ in its various phases and dimensions, or simply the various phases and dimensions of union with Christ. Union with Christ is a very broad concept. It's much broader and embraceive than just what's immediately related to our, our own experience of being saved or what is often called the application of salvation to us in our own life experience when we are converted, when we are effectually called, and and then we are are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit and by faith. That's one phase and dimension of union with Christ. And we're going to be looking at that more more later, and I'm really going to spend more time on that because that's really the part I want to focus on. But the concept of union with Christ, while including that, is much larger than that. It spans the whole of salvation including the planning of salvation in eternity in election, the accomplishment of salvation by the work of Christ in history, and the application of salvation to us in our life experience from its inception all the way to its consummation in glory. Well, I want to try to help us to see this and to understand this. I'm going to try to break this down. What are these various phases or dimensions of union with Christ? There are mainly three And we'll only have time to cover the first of them this evening. There's what is sometimes called predestinarian union with Christ. Our union with Christ in the planning of our salvation before time began. Then there's what is sometimes called historical redemptive union with Christ. Our union with Christ at the very time in history in which he was born into the world, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead. And then there's what can be called experiential union with Christ, and that's what occurs when we're born again. And we're united to Christ by the Spirit and by faith at conversion. Now, don't let all of that confuse you right now. I'm going to be explaining each of these, okay, as we go along. But in our time this evening, we'll only have time to consider the first one. First of all, what is, there's what is called predestinarian union with Christ. Now, 
Reformed theologians describe this in different ways, but what this is referring to is our federal union with Christ in eternity in the planning of our salvation. Our federal union with Christ in eternity in the planning of our salvation. Hold on now, I'll be explaining, okay, what that means. You see, the language of in Christ reaches all the way back to eternity, all the way back into God's eternal election, God's eternal purpose to save his elect through Jesus Christ. Look again at chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, where we began this evening. Paul begins the hymn of praise in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And as we saw earlier, this language in Christ then is the controlling thought in all that follows. God has blessed us with all of the spiritual blessings of salvation in Christ, in union with Christ. Next, he then begins to enumerate some of these blessings. And he begins with the first one, in verse 4, what is the first one? The first one is our election before the foundation of the world. You notice how he puts it. Notice what he says. Just as he chose us, how? In him. When? Before the foundation of the world. Now, notice what the text says. It doesn't say he chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world, as though the act of choice made us candidates to be in him sometime later. And it certainly doesn't say he chose us because he saw that one day we would choose to be in him by faith. That's the way some people try to twist the text who really struggle with the doctrine of election, but that's not what it says. What does the text say? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This choosing us in him occurred before the foundation of the world. In him choosing us in him. What Paul is saying is that in the very act of divine election by the Father before the foundation of the world, he chose us in a way in which we were already contemplated as being joined to Christ. In other words, with reference to God setting his sovereign lo love upon a people, as far back as the scriptures will let us trace that activity, we were never contemplated in the divine counsel apart from union with Christ. We were chosen with reference to Christ or in conjunction with Christ as our representative before we were ever brought into experiential union with Christ in time by faith. We were already from eternity in representative union with him. This has also been called a federal union or covenantal union with Christ. Our word federal comes from the Latin word fuedus, which means pact or treaty or covenant. And more specifically, federal speaks of a compact in which the one or the, the part represents and acts on behalf of the many. Or the whole. For example, we, we sometimes refer to our government as the fed, a federal government. That means it's a government in which by law or by formal pact or constitutional covenant, we have officials who are elected to represent us in a federal relationship, a federal union. For example, when Franklin Roosevelt declared war on Japan or when the Congress declared war, we as a country, the United States of America... Everyone in the United States of America was at war with Japan. 
Why? Because those who legally and federally represented us declared war on Japan. So the word federal is used when referring to a compact in which one party acts on behalf of the many. Well, what I want us to see is that going all the way back into eternity, back to the planning of salvation in election, there was a federal union established between Christ and those God purposed to save. Well, let me put it this way. Again, we are not experientially, in our experience, united to Christ so as to actually be saved from sin and wrath in our own life experience until we're born again and believe upon Christ. But prior to that, in eternity, God chose us in conjunction, and in conjunction with that choice, we were given to Christ and united to him as our representative. Just as it was the same with Adam. Before you ever existed, you were in union with Adam. There was a federal union of the whole entire human race, every human being who would ever live with Adam that God established in the beginning. So that when Adam sinned, we sinned. When he fell, we fell. And we reap the consequences of Adam's sin. In the same way, all the way back into the reaches of eternity past, there was a federal union established between Christ and those God chose to save. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus uses language like this? John six thirty seven. all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out notice we have the father's giving of certain sinners to the son we have these sinners coming to the son and we have the son receiving those who come but notice the order they're given to the son by the father that uh, they're, they're they're being given to him precedes their actual coming to him and being saved by him. They were given to Christ before they ever came to him. And that's true of every single one of us sitting here this evening who has come to Christ and has trusted him for salvation. Before you ever came to him, you were given to him by the Father in the eternal counsel of the Godhead in eternity. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17. He begins the prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh. Listen, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And there are many passages we could look at to open up that whole concept of the eternal counsel of redemption. It's really all over the Bible, but I trust you're beginning to see this. As Paul says, in our text, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see, by the very decree which predestined the salvation of the elect, Christ was also predestined to acquire that salvation for them as their representative. And they were given to him. And he was responsible for them. In that sense, the elect can be said to be chosen in Christ from eternity there is this oneness between christ and his people that traces all the way back to what theologians have called the eternal covenant the eternal council of redemption involving all members of the trinity the father the son and the holy spirit an eternal intertrinitarian compact in which the father gave to the son a people 
Jesus refers to this numbers of time, how he came with a commission that was given to him by the Father, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I should lose nothing. And this, he says, no, this is the commission that was given to me, that I should lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have who are not of this fold, them also I must bring. The son assumed the responsibility then. These people were given to the son. The son assumed the responsibility of coming into this world as a man, the God-man, to accomplish the redemption of those people the father gave to him. Then in connection with the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit in time applies that salvation to them in their life experience. But it all traces back to their election in Christ before the world began. This is the same truth Paul underscores in 2 Timothy 1.9. Speaking of God's work in saving us, he says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us, how? In Christ Jesus, when? Before time began. In the language of Top Lady, who captured this very truth in one of his hymns. To thee, O Lord, alone is due all glory and renown. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy crown. Thou wast thyself our surety. In other words, you, you, you took responsibility for us and our debts. You were yourself our surety in God's redemptive plan. In thee, in Christ, God's grace was given to us long ere the world began. You see it. In Christ, this grace was given us before the world began. But it's a truth that's only revealed to us in the word of God. And it's, a, it's, it's in many ways a mystery. We can only understand it insofar as God has revealed it to us in his word. It's not so much to be intellectually scrutinized as to be humbly received with faith and with adoring worship and gratitude to God that we should be so united to Christ in the electing purpose of the Father from eternity. Well, God willing, we'll come back to this next time. And next we're going to consider this, this same federal union as it's then carried down into history. In the actual incarnation, life, atoning death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Christ. We're going to see that we died with him, we were raised with him, we ascended with him, and we are exalted with him. Even now, in him. In our status and position before God. What's sometimes referred to as redemptive historical union with Christ. And then we'll consider that phase of union with Christ in which we then enter into these things in our experience, in which we are actually brought to experience this salvation that he has accomplished for us and secured for us, experiential union with Christ by the Spirit and by faith at the point of our conversion, what that means. And it's very important practical implications for our lives. And that's, that's where we're going to be spending most of our time. But now I want to break off from exposition tonight and explanation and move to application. You know, every truth of the Bible has a practical purpose. God doesn't give us like superfluous truth. It all is intended to move us, to affect us, to guide us, to teach us about God. 
to have a practical effect upon our lives. So what are some of the practical, theological and practical implications? Don't, don't be nervous about the word theological because what's that mean? The knowledge of God. What do we learn about God? And what, what are practical implications of what we've seen this evening? Well, first of all, I'll just start here. I trust it's obvious to all of us that this truth strongly supports the doctrine of particular redemption. The doctrine that although the death of Christ is of sufficient value for all, and Christ and the salvation he gives are freely and sincerely offered to all, and all who trust in Christ shall certainly be saved, in that sense we can say there's a sense in which Christ died for all, his death is for all. Yet at the same time, when Christ came, he did not come with the intent or the effect of securing the redemption and salvation of the entirety of mankind. You see, this truth of a previously established union between Christ and those he came to save is very relevant to this question, for whom did Christ die? Did Christ simply come into the world as an independent person with no previously established commission from the Father? and with no previously established connection with and relationship to anyone in particular, and as the representative of no one in particular, and is therefore the salvation of no one actually made certain by his death. It's only in some way or another made possible for everyone, and just as possible and conceivable that no one might be saved by it. Is that what he did? Well, if you believe in a general kind of atonement and you're consistent, you'll have to answer yes to that question. And you'll also have to ignore or explain away the entire doctrine of union with Christ as it relates to our Lord's saving work. You see, we must never divorce the death of Christ from those people to whom he was previously united in a federal union in God's electing purpose. And as we'll see next time, also in all that he did in history in the accomplishment of his work. Another very important theological implication and practical, this is practical too, is this. This truth provides a powerful um, justification and defense for properly grasping, understanding the substitutionary, curse-bearing nature of our Lord's death against all of its detractors. You see, the heart of the gospel is that Christ died not as a potential substitute, but Christ died as a real substitute, bearing the curse of the law in the stead of those for whom he died. It was a substitutionary, curse-bearing atonement. That is, he bore and he satisfied the demands of God's justice against us for our sins in the place of those for whom he died. He was their substitute. And in a sense, that word substitution is the gospel in a nutshell. It's the very heart of the gospel. Therefore, it's not surprising that Satan throughout history has constantly launched his attack against that very concept. And in the history of doctrinal debate, those who have advocated unbiblical ideas and heretical ideas about the death of Christ, in the sense that they have denied the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement, they've basically done so along two lines. One, they argue, first of all, that Christ cannot be said to suffer in the stead of others because such an idea is foreign to every concept of justice. It's not right for somebody, it would be right for me to suffer for something that you've done. 
The soul that sins, it shall die. You can't transfer guilt from one party to another. And the second argument is that it's not right for guilty people to be set free on the basis of the merit of another. Just as you can't transfer guilt from one party to an innocent party, you can't transfer innocence from one party to a guilty party. And they say the whole idea is immoral and absolutely contrary to the principles of justice, and therefore it can't be what the Bible's talking about, therefore it cannot be of God. Now what do we say to that? The Bible says we must contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. We must by sound doctrine convince the gainsayers. Besides, what are you going to do when the evil one interjects thoughts like that into your mind? And there's a lot of Christians say, I know somehow the death of Christ has something to do with, but I don't really understand the connection. How is it that something that Jesus did on the cross has anything to do with me and my sins? I don't understand how that actually works. Well, you need to understand that. If you're going to have a strong, confident assurance of your salvation. And when the evil one comes and he inserts doubts into your mind to shake you off your foundation, to rob you of your assurance, how do we answer these objections to a substitutionary atonement? How does God's word answer them? Well, it answers them, among other ways, most powerfully, by this glorious truth of union with Christ. Why? Because in light of this truth, the innocent, in a very real sense, did not suffer for the guilty. The innocent himself, by means of a federal representative union with them, became guilty and suffered as the guilty one. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he has made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when people say, by no amount of legal juggling can you have an innocent person bear the guilt of the guilty, we say that by the arrangement of God, such a union was established between Christ and his people that he was actually and really regarded as one with them. And he was actually regarded as the guilty one, and the death of Christ cannot be rightly understood with biblical clarity unless it is viewed with reference to that union that exists between Christ and those for whom he died. A federal representative union established from the foundation of the world in the eternal covenant of redemption and God's electing purpose. Your head spinning? You get that? You see that? You understand that the doctrine of substitution is not hanging on a skyhook out there somewhere. It's rooted in this reality of the union with Christ of all those for whom He died. He actually was our substitute in that we were one with Him and counted. He's counted one with us, so that He legally, federally, became guilty. Not in the sense of personally guilty, but federally guilty. That our sin was justly and rightly accounted to him as his sin. And he was punished in our place. Thirdly, this truth of our covenantal union with Christ before the foundation of the world also helps us to see the eternal nature of God's love for his people. 
both the eternal nature of the love of God the Father for us and the eternal nature of the love of God the Son. First, let me underscore the love of the Father. We are never to think of Christ's redeeming work as somehow detached from the purpose of the Father. Though the whole triune God was working in concert together for the salvation of sinners, we often fail to realize that. That in the matter of our salvation, the Bible always starts with God the Father. Sometimes you see, hear some presentations of the gospel, and it sounds like you get this idea, well, you know, God is angry, and he's the mad one. Jesus is the loving one. And Jesus, by his actions, somehow coerced the unloving God to start loving us. Or you get the idea that the Trinity is kind of working at cross purposes. You know, God has one purpose, and Christ has another purpose. But when we think of the Trinity... We're never to conceive of the Father as a kind of passive bystander who is coerced to save sinners by the work of his Son. No, all three persons of the Godhead work together in unity of mind and purpose in our salvation, and each one has their own unique role, what's called uh, their ec- the economic roles of the Trinity. They each have a different role when it comes to the subject of our salvation. It all begins with the Father. The Father is depicted in Scripture as electing in love a vast company to salvation that no man can number from every kindred, tribe, and tongue as an act of pure and adulterated kindness and grace. Sovereign grace, freely choosing to save those who do not deserve it and establishing a federal representative union between them and his Son. And then in the fullness of time, sending the Son into the world. The Father's always described as sending, sending Christ into the world, sending the Son into the world to accomplish their redemption through his incarnation and atoning death. Then the Son, in his great love for us, accepts that commission. He comes to do the will of the one who sent him, his Father, which involves him taking to himself our flesh, living in this sin-cursed world, suffering the most terrifying agonies and death as our substitute upon the cross. And in due time, the Holy Spirit in love comes to them in the preaching of the gospel, awakening in their hearts faith in Jesus Christ and applying all the blessings of that redemption to those the Son has redeemed. My friend, have you, if you've been brought to see your sinfulness and to run to Jesus Christ for refuge, if you gladly confess and embrace Jesus Christ this evening as your Savior and your Lord, do you realize that your salvation was planned from eternity? Do you realize it was secured in history? It was absolutely secured in history by the work of Christ. And there was a great eternal council, as it were, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the three blessed persons of the, of the one God set their distinguishing love upon you and determined how they would accomplish the purpose of that love in time. And you were united to Christ. You were given to him. You were united to him in a federal union and were in his heart long before you ever were born and ever existed. And it's the realization of that that ought to cause us to shout praises to God at the top of our voices and to be amazed and humbled. It ought to greatly humble us. It ought to fill us with awe to realize that foreseeing all of our sinfulness and vileness, 
Nevertheless, God had us in his thoughts for good from eternity. And Christ had us in his heart from eternity. He had us in his heart when he came and when he died on the cross. As the old Puritan Alexander Nesbitt put it, And who are we that the thoughts of God should have been so long since taken up about us, while he appointed his own son for us, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world? And then finally, what does this say to those of you who remain unconverted this evening? It tells you, my friend, that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. But it also tells you that there's no reason that anyone can't be saved, no matter who they are, where they come from, no matter what their sins are, if they are in Christ. This salvation is all of grace. It's not in you. It's not because of you. It's not because of anything you have or will ever do. It is in Christ Jesus. You say, but how can I know that I'm in Christ Jesus? How can I be in Christ Jesus? How can I know if I'm one of God's elect? Well, there's only one way you can know that. Come to Jesus. And you can be absolutely sure of it. We don't start, as Calvin said, Christ is the mirror of election. We see our election by looking into the face of Christ as our hope and our salvation and putting our trust in him. We don't start with knowing our election and then we come to Christ. We start with coming to Christ and then we know our election. Christ is set before you in the gospel and all and any are bid freely to come to him and be saved. Whosoever will may come whosoever will let him come and take the water of life freely god promises to save all who cast themselves upon the person of jesus christ for mercy jesus said in john 6:37 all that the father gives me shall come to me yes that's election but then he said and him who comes to me i will by no means cast out come to christ and he promises to receive you and to save you. There's nothing keeping you from him but your own unwillingness to come. And he is willing to receive you. He has promised that he will receive you, that he will save you. And you see, it's only after you come that you can know and begin to learn that you came because God first set his electing love upon you and he gave you to his son even before you were ever born. Well, may God help us to, uh, to lay hold of these realities. This is the hardest part of understanding the doctrine of union with Christ. We'll pick up with this again. I hope, hope it will be. I hope you got it, though. And next week, we'll begin to look at these other two phases, and then we'll really begin to apply that third phase to our life in the various ways it can help us as Christians. So let's pray together. Thank you for your word, Father. We thank you for this truth. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing. It's glorious. And who are we, Lord, that you should be mindful of us? Lord Jesus, we thank you that even from eternity, you loved us and you committed to come and you entered into a federal union with sinners like us and you came to redeem us and to save us. We thank you that you were successful that you completed the work the Father gave you to do 
that you could say on the cross, it is finished, it is done. The salvation of all those in union with you was made certain by the work that you accomplished. You're not frustrated in your work. You are powerful in your work and you are glorious in this salvation. And we belong to you and we love you and we pray that experientially we might enjoy greater communion with you a greater confidence of our union with you that is real and unshakable and unbreakable and that will carry us all the way to glory. For those who are outside of Christ, Lord, I pray that you'd help them to see that, you, that Christ is able and willing to save them, that they're not to try to figure out election, to climb up into heaven and read the scrolls of God or anything like that, but they're to believe your promise that whosoever will may come. And whoever comes will certainly be saved. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.